Wouldn't human instinct at a certain temperature be to get the hell out of there? And Yes. And that is why they, that's like, statistically, that's why people die in their fire shelters is they're like, I can't take this anymore. I can't take it. I can't take it. And then they flip it over or like try to get out to try to move to someplace else. And then they die instantly because like superheated gases and stuff. All right, welcome to another episode of the Rescue Swim Mindset Podcast. I'm your host, Vince. Today we have a guest that we've we've been looking forward to having on, a hot shot. So a forest firefighter, also training to be a smoke jumper, an incredibly rad woman. We talk about physical training that goes behind being a hot shot slash smoke jumper. We talk about the tragedy that happened in that movie. It's called Only the Brave. So if you've seen that movie, it's 19 members of the granite mountain hotshot crew that passed away leaving only one survivor we talk about that incident we talk about what it's like to actually be in a thermal shelter when a fire is roaring over you we also cover the best tactics to survive a forest fire and we finish by talking about the qualification process that's involved in becoming a hotshot or a smoke jumper as well as the physical standards they also run the 1.5 mile run so that's something we've talked a lot about on the podcast navy seals run it Helicopter rescue swimmers run the mile and a half. And that's why we came out with that program, the 1.5 mile run program operated by Cody. And we actually dive into the science of what goes on behind that, as well as something that Cody talks about in his other program, the become the expert program. I don't even want to get into it. You need to go check it out on the rescue swimmer mindset.com. Cody gets into these different zones that you reach as you're training I don't even want to talk about it, but we talk about it a little bit on the podcast. This guest clearly knows a lot about the subject and we cover it in our courses. So go to rescuesormindset.com. If you want to get into the science behind free diving or breath holding, that's my expertise and you can check out that program as well. So again, rescuesormindset.com. If you like the show, leave a rating review on the Apple podcast. And if you like to hear wilderness survival stories or just entertaining wilderness stories, the first raw the outrageous story is now on the Wildertainment podcast exclusively. So if you want to hear some cursing, if you want to hear me go bananas talking about rock climbing, then go check that out. Great. Without further ado, our guest today, Caitlin Chen. Um, I guess I should give you a little disclaimer before we start. I can't promote this podcast on my social media, whatever oh, we talk right. about. <laughs> that's totally fine it's up to you <laughs> i did see your your social media it's pretty low on the followers is that a, for a specific reason because you have some cool shots i actually it's a long story but i used to have like eighty thousand followers and i deleted them all why because i felt like a fake it was such a joke i was like there's no way um, and it's true. Like, you know, if you have that huge of a following, the majority of them are like bots and spammers anyways. That's like the bulk of anybody's following. I'm pretty sure. But people, my own friends were like, Caitlin's Insta famous. And I was like, that's horseshit. I do not think that's cool. So I ended up deleting everyone, including my mom. <laughs> like I just took it. 
that this was actually just a couple of weeks ago. I took it all the way down to zero. So whoa, fifty three is since you deleted it a couple weeks yeah, ago. Yeah, I mean, like mostly my friends, but okay. I didn't even tell my friends that I deleted them. So like, no one really knows. I just. I don't know. I like the Instagram thing. I got like a huge following years ago when I was hot shotting um, and like kind of putting out images that were pretty interesting. Um, and I just never felt very comfortable with being recognized like that because I'm just like a cog in the machine, right? Like I'm a hot shot, but so are like thousands of other people who are doing the same shit, seeing the same shit. They're just not pulling their phone out on the line to take a picture of it. And I just did not feel like I should have any recognition or like, you know, lots of randos are like, Oh, thank you for your service. And I'm like, I'm just a little, little peon really low on the totem pole. Don't thank me. <laughs> So, so did that happen inadvertently? Because a lot of people work hard to grow such a large Instagram following. Yeah, it was totally not me. Um, Instagram used to not have an algorithm. They used to have like handpicked accounts. Like this was pre-Facebook ownership. And so like they would have actual Instagram employees like scour for interesting things. And so I got featured by Instagram a few times. And then when that sort of thing happens, then you get picked up by like clickbait stuff and random brands like want you. And so they just like, you know, repost your photos or whatever. And I never sold a single thing. I never hashtagged a single thing. I was just like, this is so, you know, like, I'm sure you understand, like when you're just really low on the totem pole, you're just another grunt. You're just another guy in line. Like there's no reason why you should get famous for that. Right. <laughs> you're, you're like, <laughs> no, I got to be honest with you. I totally, I understand the importance of it, especially for say our business, the marketing aspect of it. And luckily my partner, Cody mostly takes care of that. Cause I like to, I like to make videos that's what i do i really enjoy it but i hate getting it out there i hate you know i, I like to take a, a photo and and make an edit but i don't like per se because i know what you have to do now you have to do the hashtags you got to tag different places you need to get the highest visibility just to grow it yeah i, I try to avoid it and luckily i got cody there that, that helps diffuse it so you know people can yeah. hear and, and learn well, in your business, you do need to be self-promoting, but I am not a business. I'm just a person and therefore I didn't really like the attention. So I just deleted everything. Yeah. <laughs> you were at the OG, you were like at the MySpace time of Instagram, right? As in the yeah. OG. Yeah. 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 And like at the time, like I said, like I won't deny that what I was putting out there was interesting because a female firefighter on the front lines is like definitely a perspective that catches attention. And I can respect that for sure. I just still didn't feel like it was, I don't know, something that I really wanted. <laughs> so. Yeah. And then with the, co the COVID stuff also kind of blew me up a little bit there for a bit. And I was just kind of like, yeah, me and all, my million, two million, five million healthcare workers out here, like individuals do not deserve to be singled out. Like we're all fighting the good fight. I yeah. hear you. So, uh, all right, let's, let's get away from social media and get into yeah. the nitpicky of, in my opinion, what is 
pretty much the burliest job available out there. And I, I compare it like, honestly, in, in my perspective, there's two jobs that are really, uh, and that's like oil rigging. I keep seeing those guys moving those pipes. And then you guys just all grimed up with dirt and just smoke and, and everything. I really have always looked up to what you guys do and I've often considered it. So thanks so much for coming on. We keep talking about getting a smoke jumper on and you just, yeah, you just informed me that you're training for that as well, but we'll, we'll get into the hot shotness of it. So how long have you been doing that? Been a hot shot for? Well, I started in 2011 on what's called a type two IA hand crew, which is kind of like the little brother to hotshot crews. It's where, um, rookies kind of get their feet wet or on an engine. Um, but I did that for a couple of years and then I, um, I was kind of told in those first couple of years that I would like never make it as a hotshot. So that sort of pissed me off and, made me want to do it. So, uh, then after that I went and I was a hotshot for three years, um, in Oregon. And then from there, um, I repelled, um, which is, it, I, so I haven't been a hotshot in a while. Um, I repelled for the next four years, which is helicopter repelling. And then I took a year off and now I'm training for fire again this year. When you're a repeller, you're no longer fighting fires. What, you, what is repelling? Oh, repelling is, um, it's like the, uh, helicopter version of smoke jumping. Um, so both are aerially delivered firefighters. Um, they're both intended to get people on the ground into remote places very quickly. Um, helicopters have the advantage of being very quick and, um, smoke jumping has the advantage of having a longer range and like higher payload, um, with a bigger number of crew on board with our repel platforms. Um, at least in the U S we operate out of bell mediums. And so, um, you can only have four repellers per load, um, which means they can make multiple trips if the fire is fairly close, but, um, there's a lot of uh, rivalry between the two, I guess you could say, um, but they both have like a great purpose. Um, they get people in to remote places. You're saying there's a rivalry between what the smoke jumpers and the repellers? Yeah, totally. We're both like aerially delivered. We race to fires when there's a call out, like um, a fire spotted um, and they start calling out resources. Like it's like, who's going to get there first, the repellers or the jumpers. And we've beat them a couple times. And by we, I mean repellers, cause I'm not a jumper yet. Yeah. And that is like a completely almost separate world from hot shotting. Hot shotting is on the ground all the time. Like that course banquet kind of ad you've seen <laughs> the dirt and everything. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, you're just always dirty and you're always on the ground and you're always working really hard, but the aerial side of things is definitely a more be ready to pounce kind of mode. So you're more often than not, you're staged and ready to respond to fires versus just going to the big ones and getting plugged in on a big chunk of line. Interesting. 
Well, we'll get into the aerial, but we'll start with the hot shots. But I, I'm just curious what kind of shit talking goes on between the smoke jumpers and the repellers. Oh God, there's so it's there's so much of it. It's so funny. Um, and the thing is, is a lot of jumpers, well, almost all jumpers, um, you have to be a hot shot in order to to jump. That is like a real basic prerequisite. Some people get around that, but not that many. Um, and so like nobody really shits on hot shots, but like <laughs> um the aerial like the aviation part of firefighting is like hurting a bunch of cats. They are so rogue and they're so independent and they're so um like special mission oriented that are they Charlie like, Sheen in Navy SEALs? <laughs> you know, I haven't seen that, but like you can imagine. yeah. But yeah, and so it's it's I mean like we operationally everyone does a really good job it's like all the funny little things in between and like there is a hierarchy smoke jumping is the top okay maybe we're all just jealous i guess (laughs) Did, did they tend to walk with a little more swag with some aviators the smoke jumpers um no not at all they like they're they're very like under the radar there's um there's like style in fire and hot shots are the most buttoned up they always have their shirts tucked in they always walk in a line they always like move efficiently they always look professional um like no matter how dirty they are like that's hot shot creed is like you look good um Whereas in aviation, like nobody's even wearing a crew shirt. They're like walking in a Buffalo herd. Like people have got, don't have their pack on. Like <laughs> there's just like, it's like the transition from, from a hot shot to aviation is like astonishing. Sometimes you're just like, Oh my God, this is so sloppy. <laughs> like, but they've kind of, in some ways they've like earned the right because they're, they're doing different operations. You don't need to be a sheep in the line with your shirt tucked in. You are, have already proved your competence and you're being asked to go do more select missions. And so like, who cares? It doesn't affect the quality of the work that you do. It's a, it's a tough mentality to wrap your mind around. Well, I guess we should start with the hot shots just so, and then we can upgrade upgrade per yeah, se, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. you know, get it into that. So could you run through how you, you first of all, get launched on a situation as a hotshot and how you start to combat the fire? What's the, the step-by-step process of that? I know that's a big question. Oh yeah. So I guess I should start with hotshots are 20 person crews. They're always 20 person crews that kind of fluctuates between 19 and 22, but it's a pretty rigid crew structure. They're called interagency hotshot crews, so IHCs, meaning they're held to a standard that's applied to all hotshot crews across the country. Um, And they are pretty much always applied to what we call extended attack. Initial attack is like a brand new little fire that you can go put people on really quickly um, and hopefully contain it before you need more resources. Um, extended attack is when that fire has already gone big. It's already a multi-day, multi-week, multi-month thing that involves a lot of logistics, aviation, catering, 
fire camp, the whole nine yards. So hotshot crews are mainly attached to those large fires that require um, a lot of production in the form of fire line creation, fire break creation, and then also like burning out. And so really the prerequisite for getting a hotshot crew called up is that the fire is big and it needs manpower on it. Um, that big is super variable. Like that could be like five acres or that could be 250,000 acres. That happens to like, what was the California spread? I mean, that's that North complex last year went like, I don't even remember. It was like well over half a million. I know it went like 200,000 acres in one day. Um, and we, we've been having more fires over the last few years that have gone really big. It's a combination of factors, but like the size doesn't necessarily matter that much. Um, it's the complexity and like the tasks that are needed. Um, obviously on a really big fire, you're going to have the entire variety of tasks that need to get um done um some parts of the fire might be really active and some parts might not be so what do you mean by a part that's very active very active means like it's pushing like the fire's up and running making moves like getting into things um establishing itself and then running um or aligning with the terrain and winds or um threatening property that's active like not active is like when it doesn't have much wind or fuel influence on it and it's just kind of moving really slowly or it's already been put out Hmm. now so you said you started in oregon and then did you transition as a repeller to washington area um i started i actually started in washington on that type two IA crew. And then I went to Oregon for the hot shotting. And then I went to Idaho for the repelling and hmm. Idaho is perfect repel country. Cause it's all super steep and really remote. Okay. So how did you first learn about this job and what made you want to get into it? And how did you get into it? Uh, I was a junior at, Western Washington University in Bellingham. And I had a couple of friends that were fighting fire for the Forest Service in the summer. And I just thought it would be really cool Um, back then. And even now, but even more so back then, firefighting was a student's job. Like it was the perfect summer job, just like Alaskan fishing or something. because fire season used to fit pretty neatly into summer break. Nowadays, we have a really, really long fire season, as you know, California. Um, but that, that was just like a very common, still is a very common college student thing to go do. Um, so I begged for my first job at... Um, like on the other side of the mountains here in Washington over on the Okanagan Wenatchee national forest. And Mm. they let me in. Um, and once you get your foot in the door, then it's kind of like 
it's so much easier to get a job after that. Getting, getting in is the hardest part because hiring is convoluted, but Mm. yeah. And then I got in and I was like, like I said, I learned about what hot shots were. Oh, and the thing was, is I grew up on the West side of the Cascades. So it's like always raining over here. There are no wildfires. I didn't even grow up knowing that wildfires were like a problem or a thing. Like you just don't deal with them. Lots of people don't know over here. It's totally forgivable. Um, but after I got that first job, I was like, Oh, hot shots. Never heard of those. They seem badass, and so I made it a goal to be able to go do that. Um, and then it's just like that's a gateway drug. Then you go hot shot, and you're like, "What's the next hard thing that I want to go do?" Oh, rappelling. <laughs> and <laughs> is, is there a is there a physical standard to getting recruited though for the hot shots? Uh, yeah. Not to get recruited, but on day one, like day one, first 10 minutes, you have to do the PT test. And that is um, more or less standard across all hotshot crews. And it's a mile and a half run, um, pull-ups, push-ups, and sit-ups. And then 45-pound pack test for three miles. That's standard for all firefighting. Um and then for hot shotting, they do what's called um, critical training. So 80 hours of critical training in their first two weeks that are like a whole bunch of line digging and hiking with weight and lots of PT and refresher classes and more PT and more hiking and surprise, surprises. <laughs> Sur- oh, surprises. Surprises. Is that like? You never know what's coming. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We know about that. It's interesting. All these elite type positions seems to always go with a mile and a half run. Same for rescue swimmers. I think Navy SEALs do the same. That We actually have a course to train folks to do a mile and a half. It's kind of odd distance. It's not the mile. It's not the two mile. Right. Yeah. It's, um, it's, I've been told it's like a great predictor of your VO2 max and um, it does not relate at all we've all agreed in the fire world that the pt tests do not relate whatsoever to your ability as a firefighter (laughs) i think they're just holding everyone to them because they're difficult they're mentally difficult and so everyone needs to almost everyone there's a lot of off the couch outstanding athletes out there and they can go fuck themselves um but like most of us need to train in order to like not get totally winded and die on those those mile and a halves um you said vo2 max i should know what this is i think so vo2 max is like the volume of oxygen that you use per minute um you can only measure it with really specific tools but like you can estimate it based on your heart rate too pretty much it's like your the max heart rate that you can sustain for a couple minutes no longer oh interesting it's like your it's your top end heart rate range so how would you measure that and why would that be important to know when you're training i don't measure it and i don't think it's important but (laughs) but like vo2 max is like one of those those numbers that people bat around when they're talking about like 
Lance Armstrong or uh, what's his name? Killian Jornet. Um, they have like absurdly high VO2 maxes. And what it means is that their bodies are incredibly efficient at processing oxygen. So for every breath they take, they are getting more oxygen into their blood and that oxygen goes to your muscles and then it makes them like basically better gas mileage machines. So for their effort level, they're like hardly breathing. So, so how is this different from blood oxygenation as in something you would get on a reading off a pulse ox? It, it varies from that? No. So VO2 max is like your rate of oxygen consumption. So you're like liters of oxygen per minute. Um, hmm. And then your, your blood oxygenation is the percentage of your blood that is um, well of your hemoglobin that is loaded with oxygen right. hmm. at any given time. So it's like passing a light through your blood cells to see how oxygenated they are. Yeah. Okay. I gotcha. Yeah. I, know, I know you're a trail runner. I started, uh, reading that breath book and, and adopting the whole breathing from the nose. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. It's like the zone two running. Yeah. It's fascinating. That was, that's a huge underrated part of aerobic training for sure. Are you adopting some of those methods as a trail runner yourself? Um, I did. I, over the last couple of years, I've run a few ultras and this past fall, I ran a hundred mile race down in Arizona. And so the preparation for that involved a ton of aerobic training, which I didn't go by like nose breathing specifically. I have a heart rate monitor on my watch. So I just kind of stick with that. If you want to be super accurate, you can use power like Watts, like get a foot pod and stuff. But the next best thing is, is probably a heart rate monitor. And it's like, all it's just all about keeping your heart rate under a certain level, which is individual to you um, in the zone that we call like zone two, which if you do a load of work in zone two, it increases your aerobic base, basically makes you more efficient from, this is very nerdy, but like from a, from a cellular level, it, what it means is you grow your, um, the density and the efficiency of the mitochondria in your muscle cells. And you just basically become a more efficient machine. So less work at faster paces or less work at the same pace or both. I think my partner's Cody's talked about zone two, but could you explain that just for folks listening in? Zone two is like pretty well widely understood to be approximately, approximately 180 minus your age. So I'm 31. My zone two upper end mean uh, would be roughly 150, 149. Um, and so what that means is doing all of your work or not all of your work, but like 80 to 90% of your work under 150 beats per minute. Um, and then you can fudge around with that a little bit, like plus five, minus five, depending on whether you're really well conditioned or if you're injured and coming back after a long time off. But, um, and then I guess the, the lower end of that zone would probably be like, I don't know, roughly 10% below that. So like 
135 to 150 is my zone too. And, um, yeah, uh, it's, it's sort of, um, (laughs) you'll read the books about this. There's a lot of, uh, fantastic endurance coaches out there that have written about this. And, um, it's just basically that, uh, zone two is not exciting. It's not thrilling. It will not get your adrenaline up. It is just a large volume of steady work. Um, and there's no escaping that if you want to be a good endurance athlete, you will put in a shit load of like lower effort work. Um, there's like a lot of CrossFit guys out there that are like, you can run 50 K by only running two, three miles at a time, (laughs) which is true. You could technically finish a 50 K, but you wouldn't feel good. You wouldn't be able to keep doing that, sustain Mm. that true, true aerobic, um, endurance comes from a lot of endurance work. Okay. So when you say that whole math equation of you subtract your age, as you grow older though, that means that number's decreasing. So mm-hmm. that, that was your heart rate, right? Mm-hmm. That, yeah. So that means mm-hmm. it's a lower number. Isn't that become mm-hmm. harder? That means you need to be more conditioned as you get older or. Um, yeah, that, that is the idea, but also in theory, as you get older, I guess that it would be a problem if like, say you're 50 and you just decided to start running for the first time. Um, but say you are a consistent runner and then that number isn't really that big of a deal. Like, Hmm. um, in the world of endurance running, like the best in the world are older. You see this in a lot of sports too, like lifting. I think the best in the world are like in their forties. Yeah. It's it. I mean, I guess I haven't gotten old enough to tell you if that's like a problem, if that just means that like all I end up doing is walking. Um, But your, your cardiovascular system is conditioned um, at that point. And so like getting those lower heart rates, isn't really that hard, I guess. I still like, I was amazed when I first started running, I could not run at all without shooting my heart rate up to like 160. Um, I couldn't like go up hills without opening my mouth to breathe, like even hiking. (laughs) And so like, it was really satisfying over a long period of time of putting in that aerobic work, um, to be able to just cruise all the time. And like that pace got faster and faster, um, even as my heart rate stayed low. So it works. It's just like, it's not an overnight thing for sure. We, we need to get back to hot shotting, but if we were to summarize if you had like one quick fix tip for folks getting into those longer distance running and trying to adapt their cardiovascular system, what would you recommend training wise? Run slower. Interesting. Yeah. Everyone gets hurt when they run too fast. Like people are like, I'm going to run. So they get up and they put their shoes on and they go outside and they come back like half an hour later and they're wrecked. Like that isn't kind to your 
body and it certainly won't serve you in the long run. You have to run as slow as it takes to like literally never be sore. Hmm. Okay. And then add speed in later, but your body needs to adapt to like being able to handle longer distances and pounding into the ground first. So that's a lot of tissue adaptation, your mm. tendons, your ligaments, your fascia, your muscles, everything. So well below your comfort zone, you would say when you're starting off. Oh yeah. Be able to like hold a conversation, run slower. Yeah. Yeah. This is run on Hills. We should have had Cody on the podcast. I'm the, the worst host for this. Cause I don't run. He's all about this. He's that's what the training that he offers covers is all these different zones and heart rates. Cause that's all he does is. Oh, cool. so, yeah. So he'd be a better conversation. I'm just sounding like an idiot. And that's why I'm very curious about oh, it. Oh yeah. Cause I, I, uh, I don't know anything about it. Anyone can run a hundred miles if you run slow enough. I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, this podcast right now called two bears, one caves. It's, it's the two comedians, Bert Kreischer and Tom Segura. Really funny. <laughs> and they're both really fat. Let's be real. And one of them just, <laughs> he's like, I could run a hundred K and you know, a lot of people are like, no, you can't, you can't. Cause you don't, and you don't run like that and you need to train. He's like, I can do it. I can do it a hundred percent, a hundred percent. I can do it a hundred percent is what he says. And sure enough, he, he runs it pretty fine. He's like, yeah, it was fine. It was totally fine. Uh, but he was yeah. right the next day. He wasn't fit for it, but he, anyone can yeah. do it. Truly. It's yeah. Yeah. If you've got legs and like a heart that beats, you can do it. Yeah. It's, it's more about strategy. Yeah. I gotta be real. I, I was nervous, uh, for this podcast cause I, I did look through your Instagram and, and getting a little information from, I forget who hooked us up. Was it, what was her name? Was it Alex Potter? Alex. Right. And yeah, Alex told me a little bit about yourself and then I, I did my own little research and you're doing so many amazing things here. You're going in the, the canyons, doing some, what appears to be whitewater kayaking in what I can only describe as the notebook style rowboat. <laughs> like it, look, it doesn't look like a raft. Oh yeah. That is uh that's called a dory. Those are whitewater, large whitewater wooden boats. You're doing some outrageous stuff. You're, you're doing trail running, hot shotting. You are a certified nurse now as well. Yep. I've, yep. I'm a nurse. Yeah. <laughs> I used firefighting to pay for nursing school. Is, is this a great incentive position to do as a student? Like it, financially, it's pretty good. In Canada, we had something called, I did tree planting back in the day. I think that's our version, maybe a hot shots over here as well. That's our summer gig that I want to say is slightly comparable. You know, it's kind of gritty and dirty, but yeah. What, is it pretty good pay for a student doing something like that? It's pretty good pay, but it's only because of a ton of overtime um the actual hourly base pay i think is probably 14 bucks an hour or something for most hot shots it's not i think that's a gs4 wage roughly um but every single shift is 16 hours and you work 14 days in a row as a standard assignment with two days off and um so you work through your weekends and then if you do finish a 14 day assignment, then your two days off are paid at base eight hours as well. And then when you're on a fire, you get hazard pay, which is a little um, differential 
over that. And so um, it adds up to a pretty good summer gig for a young person. And we call it like everyone knows what hotshot money is, which is like you're 22 years old and you just made more money than you've ever made in your life. So you go buy yourself a bunch of really nice things and it's really (laughs) not that much money. It's just that it's just a lot of money for you. Um, Cause I mean, like the, the demographic of people who get into fire, they're all like young, predominantly um, male kids looking for an adventure. Certainly seems like an adventure. So let's, let's get into breaking down what, so you get a call, right? Let's, let's go from start to finish more or less on, uh, what you, I guess you described as a complex fire, what would be a technique? What would be some of the things that you're doing <clears throat> on a day to day to combat this fire? Well, hotshot crew would go to whatever division they're assigned to. Usually if a fire is, um, pretty big, they'll break it up into divisions. Um, and, this is, I guess this is on an established, like large fire, say it's been burning for a couple of days already. Um, and it's like making new moves every day and they're, they're trying to catch it. Um, so they break the perimeter of the fire up into divisions and each division has their own set of resources. So your crew is assigned to like division alpha and you go there and your division leader, will tell the hotshot superintendent like what his plan is. Um, more often than not, the hotshot superintendent tells the division what his plan is <laughs> and they just go with that. There may be one hotshot crew on that division. There might be three, there could be five. It depends on like how hot that piece is um, or how complex the terrain is. And then um, say they haven't seen that ground before, or maybe the fire made some moves overnight. So they don't know where the fire is at. First thing they'll do is go out and send some people to look at the line, um, not send the whole crew first. Usually they'll, they'll hike some scouts out or, and, or um, usually a combination of the two. There's an eye in the sky called air attack, which is a fixed wing, aircraft um that continuously orbits the fire and they keep eyes on all divisions so they can get eyes into things that we can't necessarily see Mm -hmm. so once they've scouted and looked at the piece of line um then and not i guess not always sometimes it's really straightforward and you don't need to do a bunch of pre-scouting first but then we get in and they send the crews in to start working and that in a hotshot crew, it pretty much always goes like the Sawyers go first. The, that's What's a Sawyer, the, a Sawyer uh, chainsaw guys. Okay. Um, and typical hotshot crews have three saw teams, and that's comprised of the primary Sawyer and a Swamper. What's a Swamper? A Swamper is so the guy with the chainsaws cutting stuff, the guy, the Swamper is pulling that material away. So, and they'll switch off oftentimes, like maybe they'll go tank for tank on the gas or sometimes like the primary Sawyer is the Sawyer all day and the Swamper is the Swamper all day. But those guys go first and they just start clearing brush and falling hazard trees um, or falling any burning trees. And so they start 
basically like bulldozing their way through. And then when um, those guys have gone through the dig, the dig line, which is the rest of the crew comes in behind them and they're scraping out the three foot wide dirt down to mineral soil line that stops fire on the ground. How deep is that? Um, just down to soil. So whatever it takes to get through the organic material. So like the Sawyers, they're pulling away all of um, the fuel from like, say the ground up. So fires, if or they're limbing up trees, like thinning the trees so that um, fire doesn't climb up them. And then the line on the ground is to actually stop the fire from moving across the ground. So the two part, the, the two part method is super effective. Um, Cause what you do want the fire to do is come up to the line and stop. That's how you can actually ensure that it gets put out. Okay. Let's back it up a little bit. So first of all, who, who makes the calls typically is there, are these civilians or there's somebody consistently just aerials, planes report it. Who reports a fire? Oh my gosh. Lots of different people. But um, throughout the West, there are a lot of fire lookouts. Um, so the towers, those are still in use. There's hundreds of them. Um, so those guys are really, really highly trained at spotting. And um, I forget what their tools are called. I'll get shot for this later. Um, but they have uh, these cool calibration old school tools where they look through a scope and they can like spot the smoke and then um, it can give them coordinates on a map of where they saw it. Shoot. So wait, hold on. Anyways. They're in a tower? There's just towers out in the woods? Yeah. You've seen them. Lookout towers, fire towers, like Jack Kerouac. No, I think I've maybe okay. heard of them, but yeah. So wait, people, th- th- that's fire, like a gig. Fire, it's almost so, like a watchtower. Like, yeah. So like, okay, well, I can give you a little history on this. About a yeah. hundred years ago, um, 1905, uh, forest service was created. Um, and 1910, there was something called the big burn. The big burn was like this catastrophically huge fire, um, in, Idaho, Montana, I think parts of Washington. It was like 3 million acres or something. And so at that time, it was so catastrophic. So many people died. So much of the forest burned down that they were like, we need to take this aggressive role in fire suppression in America. Because like that was a lot of timber. That was a lot of people's lives. And so from then on from like the 1910s on like pretty much every national forest as we know it was um, established and given order and like the forests were monitored pretty much at all times by like hundreds and hundreds of fire towers they just put people up there and they would call in fires as soon as they started this is all primarily lightning because back in the day like there weren't as many stupid humans and as soon as a fire was spotted, then um, people go and put it out right away. And that went on for decades and decades um, until like basically this millennia. Um, 
And you probably have heard a little bit about this, like the oversuppression of fire has led to like catastrophically huge mega fires. One of the bigger contributors to like extremely large fires, um, catastrophically large fires in the U.S. is because of oversuppression over the last century. So fires are natural. They are part of the landscape. A lot of the plants, trees um, rely on periodic fire. Most of the country is fire country, like west of the Mississippi and east of the Cascades. That's fire country. Like all that stuff burns either if it doesn't burn on an annual basis, like at least every five to 10 years, most things burn. Um, even, even on the West side, like over here, the Cascade mountains, the Olympic mountains, even those forests that are technically rainforests, they burn too on a longer timeline, like maybe a hundred year cycle. The Olympic rainforest burns on like maybe a 500 year cycle or so, but regardless, everything naturally burns. So when the fires were suppressed for like basically a hundred years, like aggressively suppressed by the U S government. Um, we had a pretty significant and, um, like overwhelming amount of fuel that accumulated, like sticks don't just decompose, you know, like, like shit falls in the forest and it doesn't just decompose like that stuff more often than not was, um, in a natural cycle was just burned and like new growth would take place. Um, likewise with like a lot of species of, um, insects, like you might've heard about beetle kill, um, like affecting, for example, like the whole Western half of Colorado, all those forests, like their trees look like shit because they've been killed by beetles. That beetle population is naturally suppressed by wildfire. Um, but when you don't have natural wildfire coming through, then like those populations get wildly out of control and they kill the forest anyways. And then those forests burn even harder because all the trees are dead. So it's like this bad, there's bad cycles, um, that we've perpetuated. So over the last 20 years, the U S has gotten so much better at, at what's called prescribed fire, which is going out and deliberately lighting it. And then likewise, with, um, with our wildfires, instead of trying to squash them as hard as possible, as early as possible, we look at what area they're in and see if it's feasible to do this, but we let them burn as naturally as possible within a certain boundary um, before we take action. And any fires that take place in a wilderness area or in the national parks, we, by law, they are natural. They need to burn on their own. Like they do what they want. Like I don't know, maybe a few years ago, you heard about like Yosemite burning quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. Yellowstone in the past has burnt like to the ground. Um, and that's normal. Like people think of fire as such a bad thing, but like, that's normal. That's what the ecosystems have relied upon for millennia before humans decided that fire wasn't good. So hmm. off my soapbox. <laughs> no, that was, that's really interesting. So as far as, so Yosemite, nothing could be done legally they, they didn't try to come they did that they did quite a bit i mean they did quite a bit to try to keep like public areas safe but um 
by wilderness law, we're supposed to not use any motorized anything. So you're not really supposed to use chainsaws in the wilderness. You have to get special permission for that. Um, but you're just supposed to let it do its thing. It's wild. It's wilderness. Um, so yeah, there's like a lot of exceptions to that I fought fire in the grand Teton national park a few years ago, Whoa. and that was pretty cool. And, um, but like, yeah, it's, we go in and protect, like, there's like a whole bunch of old cabins and stuff. You go in and you wrap them with basically foil. Um, and you try to protect like cool historic things and you try to protect like actual infrastructure, but otherwise you let the fire do its thing. Well, you wrap a cabin in foil. Um, yeah. Structure protection isn't really my forte, but, um, yeah, there's like a special kind of wrap that you can put on houses and infrastructure to help deflect heat. No if way. fire does come through. It's a whole different world. I don't know anything about. So is this put on manually by individuals or it's a yeah. machine? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Huh. That that's like a pretty cool task for repellers actually. Cause like there's all sorts of stuff out in the middle and nowhere that you can't really get to or hike to. And so repel in and protect a structure and then get it right out. So as far as the hot chats go accessing this, do you guys drive out on forest roads, get to the nearest place and then start walking? Cause I know yeah. you guys do a lot of yep. walking, right? Yep. Hot shots like pretty much almost never get helicopter rides. They are, they're walkers. Um, and so they normally travel in like a little convoy. You may have seen, have you seen a hot shot buggy? It's yeah. like a, <laughs> yeah. Um, it's like a little short bus. Um, so normally there's, there's like a four vehicle convoy for each hotshot crew and they bring They're totally self-sufficient. They bring all their own tools, water, got MREs for at least a couple days. Um, and, uh, like a lot of crews have an ATV or a four wheeler of some kind. Um, and they, drive as close as possible and then they start hiking in um more often than not though hot shots um hot shot crews like they go into fire camp every night um you get up you get up in fire camp you go to breakfast you go to briefing and then you get your assignment for the day you go out to the line you work until whatever time in the evening then you refurb all your gear go back to fire camp eat dinner go to sleep <laughs> Um, and then that's like a 16 hour day and you do that. And that's, that's the pretty standard hotshot assignment last year with COVID stuff. I think they switched that up a bit and they were trying to have hotshots spike out as much as possible, meaning they just stay out on the line and they brought food out to them so that they weren't coming into fire camp. Mm. Um, and by food, bring food out to them, I think they just ate a, shitload of mres last year um and when they're not coming back to the fire camp are they what sleeping on what they just have a pad and a sleeping bag or a tent yeah or that's, what? well i mean fire camp is still sleeping on the ground no matter what you're always sleeping on the ground um 
like fire camps tend to get set up in like school parking lots and like baseball fields or like empty, empty farmers fields. Um, just like a large grassy ish area. Um, and so like each crew will find some place to park their buggies. And sometimes it's like a free for all. You can just like sleep right around your vehicles. And then sometimes they have designated sleeping areas, especially mm -hmm. if it's like in town or whatever, because a lot of fire camps are in towns. Um, they'll like make designated areas. So are you guys only really intervening when there's risk for buildings and structures that are trying to be saved? Or are you also, if it's just getting too large and out of hand, you are trying to completely suppress it? Um, both. Well, so like there's hardly anywhere left in this country that isn't intersected by a road or has somebody's flag planted somewhere. Um, it's really, really difficult for a fire to start anywhere without it threatening something. Um, and I mean, it's, it's a multi-part game. Uh, the forest service sells timber some people don't know that, but it, it's, it's an industry as well. So like we aren't necessarily just trying to like promote natural eco system fires. Uh, we are also protecting timber assets as well. Um, and yeah, we like smoke is a big impact. So like any fires that are near towns, of course, we're suppressing them because they are near valuables at risk, but also because we don't want the air quality of like major areas to completely get destroyed. Um, lots of like power and utility stuff is out there, like wind farms increasingly mm. are out there, um, power lines, like all kinds of military stuff like up in Alaska, we were fighting fire around a lot of military stuff. So you've deployed in different, I don't know if they call it deployed per se, but you've gone to different States to do this. Yeah. Yep. Um, all over, uh, the forest service is a federal agency. So you have your base in one spot, but you are property of the, federal government so you can go anywhere um more often than not you'll stick to a fairly local area um meaning like the couple of states around you but um they just move everybody around to where they're needed the most mm -hmm. so we kind of follow this counterclockwise pattern um or we used to it's pretty predictable like fire season starts down in the southwest like Arizona and New Mexico. Um, so early season or Southern California, um, early season, you'd start down there um, with your first fires and then you'd start kind of moving up into like Colorado and Utah and Nevada. And then you'd end up in Idaho and Montana and like the mid summer and then the end of the season was usually Washington, Oregon, because they're those, those are like the last to start really drying out. 
Um, and then like Alaska season, pretty variable from year to year, but Alaska burns even when it's raining, like pissing rain and same thing with Florida and like the Southeast, like all those areas are quite wet and humid, but they burn just I as heard of many <laughs> fires in Florida. Yeah. So what, uh, where, Florida, where is bur- that? Florida burns probably more than anywhere else actually. Wow. Um, yeah, they, um, <laughs> I went and fought fire in Florida a couple years ago and I was like, this is so weird. We're staying at a hotel on the beach. <laughs> um, but is yeah, it brush so the, burning or it's, trees? So, or? you know, all the plants down there, they're like tropical, right? Like yeah. or mostly. So, um, you know how like wax and oil is an accelerant? Yeah. Yeah. So all the, all the plants down there are basically covered in their own accelerant. They're all waxy. They're all like oily. (laughs) So they, they burn a lot and they burn really, really fast um, and really hot because um, the density of the vegetation down there is, is high. Um, It's very lush, wet place. So yeah, they actually, the, the Everglades and like big Cypress, um, which is way down in the southern tip of Florida, they have some of the biggest prescribed fire burning programs in the country. They burn like millions of acres, deliberately burn millions of acres a year because the um, it grows back so fast. So the, right now, this is burning season down in like um, Florida, Georgia. Um, they're all out there getting after it right now, mm. burning. And that's, that's to protect, that's like to preventatively protect valuables at risk when they deliberately burn those things under their terms, then it makes fighting wildfire so much easier. Mm. Does that mean somebody's going out there with what a flamethrower or something? (laughs) Yeah. Those guys down there have some really cool stuff. They, they're special. They're like, you wouldn't find any of that stuff in the West, but down there they've got like those like fan boats they've got like yeah they've got like those swamp boats they've got like the six wheeled like creature four by fours like and they've got yeah the flame thrower torches they're called terra torches they also do um i mean we use this all over the country but ping pong balls which is um helicopters will run grids overhead and they'll drop um they'll drop balls full of, uh, forget what it's called. It's like night nitrate something or another. It's basically fertilizer, like lawn fertilizer. It's highly flammable. And this machine injects water into them or something that makes it start to burn starts the reaction. Anyways, you drop flaming balls out of helicopters in like a grid to fill in, um, like large, large areas at a time. So these are actively lit balls? Um, no, they, gosh, I should have done my homework before I started talking to you. Um, <laughs> they're, they're like these little ping pong balls that are filled with chemicals. And so they, th- like, as they drop out of the sky, they get injected with another chemical that makes them start to burn. Like they hit the ground and they, the little ball melts and then it like pours its little fuel out and it. And then somebody lights like behind that. No, they, they, they start their own fire. So like, say you have a really big box, like 
thousands of acres. Like it would take forever for people to stripe back and forth with like manual lighting with a drip torch or something. So they fly overhead and they drop the balls and that just fills in the center, like so much faster, so much more efficiently than like humans could traverse over the the ground. But then how is it lit is what I'm wondering. You're saying like the when, ball is- when the chemical, when, when the two chemicals combine, it ignites. Oh, okay. 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 Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's cool. I'm sorry. Damn. I sound really dumb right now because I should know these things, but it's, it's basically the, whatever the chemicals are, it's, I'm pretty sure it's like the same stuff that's in fertilizer. You could, you could literally say anything on this podcast because <laughs> nobody really knows about fire. So I think this is all new information <laughs> for us. Yeah. Um, there's a, and like nowadays they are starting to develop a pretty cool drone program. So, um, which is like great because then they can go and use like infrared cameras in tight places and they can, um, drop smaller quantities of those ping pong balls, like to just fill in cold spots that need to burn little little islands pockets um and like do recon with the drones which is like less human life at risk which is way cool Mm. so let me try to break down more or less what a hotshot does in layman's term just based off of what you've told me so you you get a call you guys drive out to the nearest access point you hike in you get briefings and then you have these different individuals so a sawyer you said and a swamper cutting the brush making a line then the i guess is it the regular hot shots come in they dig a trench you were saying about three-ish feet wide deep down and is that like is that pretty much what the most most missions look like yeah yeah um that's like that's the bread and butter is going in and building a fire break like that. Um, and then when the fire comes down, ideally like the whole, the whole idea of, of pulling um, all that brush out of the way and limbing the trees up is the fire is coming, it's coming. And then it hits these like thinner trees and then it drops down to the ground and then it just skunks right up to the line. And then once the fire meets the line, then we can go in and mop up, which is to say like turnover. And, and like, if we have access to water, it pretty much means we make that piece of ground cold. Um, and a fire isn't truly secure. Like just because it hit the fire line and stopped does not make it like out. You have to actually make that dirt cold. Um, so that's like the less glamorous part of hot shotting is a whole lot of mopping up. Um, and once the, like, I think typically depends on how much action there is, but like, they usually like to see 50 or 60 feet off the line like completely cold um and more if there's like big trees that had fire up in them above that could fall across the line eventually those need to be mitigated what does that mean you're turning dirt over yep you're like stirring the dirt and hopefully you have water and so then you can end up you can plumb a hose lay um we have like uh two stroke pumps that are pretty powerful that you can like if you can find a stream or a, a like pond or something, then you can pump quite a bit of water up and then, yeah, just make it 
make it cold so that um, you you can say that piece of line is actually controlled. So like putting um, putting a line on something is what we call containment, but actually making it cold inside that line, like a big buffer that's control. Mm. So, um, and those words mean a lot in, in the fire world. Like if you have smokes pop up on your line after you've said it's controlled, you're in deep shit because that means you put your stamp of quality on something and you walked away and you were not done. It doesn't mean that those little smokes are going to charge the line. And you're going to lose the whole fire or anything. It just means that like you didn't do what you said you were doing, <laughs> like what, what you yeah. said you were going to do. It's like, it's like the quality it, assurance it, guy it, shit the bed. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean like, uh, mopping up is like I said, it's not glamorous. Like at a certain point, after you're pretty sure that it's cold, like the whole crew gets down on hands and knees and is like running their hands through the dirt to make sure that there is absolutely no heat left. And that might be for like, like I said, like a depth of, I don't know, like 20 to a hundred feet off the line. And then you sit there like, um, a lot of times then you sit there and you wait till the heat of the day. Um, and watch for any heat to pop back up again. Cause it's very insidious. Like, like fire is determined to burn in the smallest ways deep underneath the dirt. And so it's hmm. a long process to call a fire out. Um, some fires are never called truly out until like the snow flies a fire that starts burning in July in like a heavy timber country. They may never call that fire out until like October because oh. you never know, like you can, and, and we can prove that too, by flying over it with infrared and you can still see like, there's like little pockets of heat underneath rocks and stuff and deep in stump holes. That's just like going to chunk away for, weeks we'll talk about only the brave the hollywood movie in just a sec because of course like that's honest sadly that's kind of where i got some of my information or at least what i've seen you guys do what's that one scene where sorry is that like a crew chief the the main character there i forget the actor's name i actually haven't seen the movie god damn it (laughs) well it's okay because i know the story okay okay And the reason why I haven't seen the movie is because I haven't been like ready to cry that hard. I've heard Uh, from people who have seen it, that it's really well done. And that particular event hit me pretty hard when it did occur. And um, I remember it's like nine 11. It's like, you know, exactly where you were. You remember exactly what you were doing when you found out. And so I just like still haven't, mustered up the heart yet to watch the movie so um is that because you know the people in that crew no i did not i actually applied to that crew but i obviously didn't work for them the granite mountain hotshots uh-huh yep uh-huh. i had thrown applications out everywhere though so hmm. um but yeah, no, it was my first year as a hotshot. That was 2013. Um, it was my very first year as a hotshot. And we had not even, it had been a really slow spring. We had like barely even been out on fires. This happened on June 30th. 
And so that's pretty late. But like I had already like figured out what the bond meant. Hotshot crews are very, very brotherly. And that doesn't matter if you're a girl. It's, it's a dynamic group of people of like a fairly wide range of ages, but in their 20s and 30s, um, different stages of life. And some people are going to drive you insane. And some people you're going to like fall in love with instantly. And you've got your leaders and you've got your new guys and you've got your everybody in between. Um, and like, it's one of those things where you go through really hard things together. And then even your late, least favorite person on the crew, you would like take a bullet for because you've been through some shit and only you know each other's struggles only you know like what these guys have been through like it's a it's it's very special a very like deep bond um and so like i already i had like i said this is my first year on the shot crew but i that i already understood that perfectly and so when i found out that an entire hot shot crew had died minus one guy it was just like oh my god that's like your 19 brothers dying that's how that's how big it is so yeah i just like haven't been able to haven't been able to watch it yet (laughs) and for those who don't know yeah so the movie is called only the brave and I, it's 19 members of the Granite Mountain Hotshot Crew, which was based out of Prescott, Prescott, Arizona. And uh, yeah. that happened in 2013. So, yeah, 19 members died, one survived. And it was really big burn, right? I think um, from the information I looked up, about 8,000 acres or so uh, destroyed about 129 buildings. Is the movie accurate? I mean, you haven't seen it, but did they die in their thermal shelters? Yeah. Um the the really specific details i probably won't go into but essentially um i guess you have to understand what a safety zone is um in fire the things that get drilled into you from day one hour one um is your it's called lces and it's the four requirements that must be in place at all times at no matter how big or how small the fire is, LCES stands for lookouts, communication, escape routes, and safety zones. All four of those must be present always. Um, so no matter where you are, you're always constantly reevaluating where those four things are because you're not staying in the same spot. So um, safety zone is defined as a place that Um, you can go uh, that no matter what the fire does, you'll be safe. So that means um, an area that is like totally clear, like say like a really large dirt field or a body of water. Not that's not ideal. Um, That's not. uh, No, because you don't really want to like, you don't want to have to submerge your crew to be safe. That's like, that's 
not ideal. Um, yeah. But a large, a large clear um, dirt area or a large grass area that you could easily burn off really, really quickly. Um, anything that's already black. Um, so an area that's previously burned, but doesn't have like ha- overhead hazards, like burn trees that are going to fall on you or anything. Those are considered safety zones. Um, and so that means like when somebody's like pull back to your safety zone, that means like fire is getting ahead of us. We're going to our safety zone. We're going to sit and watch it from here. Like we're not engaging, um, escape route is self-explanatory. That's how you get there. Um, those escape routes need to be timed and appropriate. So you need to know how difficult that's that escape route is for the slowest person on the crew to manage and will it be enough time you have to base all your decisions on how long it's going to take you to get down your safety or your escape route to your safety zone um what happened with those guys is they were in a safety zone when the fire was blowing up they were they had already pulled back um and they left their safety zone in order to go try to protect a structure and they got, and the fire overtook them. It was a very controversial, it was real. I mean, like obviously everyone in the entire fire world was just like that fucking sucks. Like that, like those guys definitely are heroes. They were doing their job. Um, At the same time, it caused a lot of, Uh, discussions in the fire world about what prioritizes what. And I know for, at least for the forest service, they pushed a message very, very hard after that, that there was absolutely no building, no structure, no infrastructure, no property, nothing that was worth the cost of a human life. Let it burn. Hmm. Was it, they were also protecting trying to go and protect livestock is I think what I read like a, uh, probably a yeah yeah a, yeah yeah maybe like a large group of cattle that was yeah at risk yeah hmm. Hmm. yep and so like the message that was carried forth from there for most fire managers was just like that was a horrible tragedy that like you can rebuild (laughs) you can rebuild anything but you can't bring someone back from the dead yeah and the one that survived i think at least in in the film seems like he was the lookout maybe that's why he was separated from the crew he was yep yep lookouts and lookouts are tend to be separated from the crew they their whole job is to gain a point of advantage that they can um see better than the crew can and because the crew's job is to to put their heads down and do the work the lookout's job is to keep their head up and like spot stuff from further away keep the crew informed of what's going on in the bigger picture Mm. we'll move away from that but what i was wondering about is i think one scene the way they're operating and combating the fire that it seems like they're throwing some kind of fire as well the fire there's a decision at one point where they're trying to decide whether to burn or not so it, mm-hmm. is there some kind of tactic to to burn to basically cut off the fire as well with f- suppress yeah. fire with fire yep yep fighting fire with fire is like 
also the if if digging line and creating a fire break is like uh that's like half of hot shot bread and butter the other half is burning out and that is yeah that's fighting fire on your own terms so putting fire on the ground to create that buffer um so that fire can run into the fire that you've already created and stop that fuel's already burnt so um often that's employed like in the most ideal situations um that's employed in what we call the big box method which is you burn out off of roads um you just draw a really large box using natural breaks that you already have so it minimizes the amount of really hard work that you have to do and then you put fire down as a buffer and then you let the you let the fire come to you um and run into that um in uh emergency situations yeah burning off like i was saying before a, a safety zone could be a place that maybe already has fuel in it like grass or something but you can burn grass like if you set dry grass on fire it will be cold within minutes so it can be a um a really good thing to preemptively burn um what you'd like to call safe. Um, and likewise, uh, in an emergency situation, yeah, starting a fire close to you is inevitably going to be better than having a wall of fire run at you. And how does that fire that you start not get picked up by the winds or whatnot, or get out of hand as well? Hopefully you already have your fire break in. So you're just like, milking it back from the line you've already put in okay so you put in fire just right along the line and then like a few feet in from the line and then a few yards in from the line and you're just kind of like stripping it back and forth to make it um a decent buffer Mm -hmm. has your crew ever had any close calls and had to retreat or yeah (laughs) Yeah, but um, the thing is with that, um, and Hollywood will over-dramatize this. The news will definitely over-dramatize this. Um, There is a lot of care taken to not end up in those situations in the first place. Um, Not engaging the fire is totally a valid option in wildland fire. Um, This isn't like fire trucks and burning buildings you have to go in um no it's a tactical game where you play when it's your advantage um when you're getting your butt kicked you walk away um because there's nothing worth getting hurt over um and then you just step back and you wait for the wind or the storm like a lot of of what affects um, wildfires are like passing overhead cells, like big storms. Um, You let whatever uh, factor that is out of your control um, come through and do its thing. And then you reassess and then you re-engage like pretty much like clockwork every single day in the summertime, we have what's called the witching hour, which is the time um, roughly between three and 6 PM, um, that 
almost all fires uh, kick up. Uh, it's the hottest part of the day. Three o'clock is the, the hottest hour of the day. And then from there, it's, um, it stays pretty hot for a few hours. And it's the driest that the fuels are going to be all day. And so some, a lot of fires, large fires, it's like a very, um, yeah, it's just a, like a daily tactical thing where each day you try to get as much work done as possible to contain the fire before witching hour. And then witching hour comes and you, the fire inevitably stands up and starts making moves and big runs and you pull off and you wait and see where it goes. And then you get back in there once it dies down again in the evening mm. or you get, come back to it in the morning and you just chase it. How close do you guys ever actually get to the fire? You're on it. You're, you're on, the, on it. You're, you're on the edge of the fire. So or what in, were we talking in, like a couple hundred yards? No, like you're on the edge of the fire. Like it's right there. It's at your feet. Um, you can't yeah. fight fire. You can't fight fire from a distance. You have to like stop it where it is. So like when I was saying about constructing the fuel break, like you're going in, um, the Sawyers are going in as close to the fire edge as possible to remove those immediate branches, trees, sticks, everything like the, the heavier burning fuels. And then the diggers are coming in behind them and they're putting that line in as close to the black ground as possible without actually scooping up the black and throwing it on the non-burn side. So are you, are you so close that you're feeling the heat? Yeah. Oof. Uh, so, okay. So I you're guess thinking, I don't... you're thinking of walls of flame. We're not yeah. dealing with walls of flame. We're talking about like, I guess you'd have to see a fire to, to really understand it. But like, um, you're thinking of like bonfires and stuff yeah, like I think so. fire that like picture your, your forest, your average piece of ground and just picture like fire, um, on the ground, I guess. Okay. If the, if the fire is up in the canopy and it is a running crown fire, then no, we're not up against that. That's stupid. You don't, that that's not playing to your advantage. You get, you need things like, aviation you need like helicopters with buckets or um planes with retardant or something to like cool that edge off before you engage but like normal ground fire you can go right up against it and and start putting in a line okay. out in the desert there is no heavy timber like out in the desert it's all like pinion pine juniper sage and stuff and that stuff burns really fucking hot and and yeah, you're definitely going to get a little hot because you do have to work right up against it because um, the flame lengths on those fuel types are like enormous. So you have to get really close in order to suppress it. Hmm. Okay. But I mean, you have, you also have, like I said, I guess we haven't even gotten to this, but you also have air resources. So like buckets, bucket work, water drops um, and retardant, which is the red paint stuff. What's uh? What's the red paint do? Um, it contains like fire suppressing chemicals. So they can, um, it doesn't work quite as well in heavy timber, but it works great in open grassier or like semi-desert conditions. Um, but you can have a plane drop a long line of, of paint 
and the fire will run into it and it will won't necessarily completely stop it, but it'll slow it down enough that you can get in there and reinforce it. Gotcha. So yeah, I, I do apologize. I think I picture larger tree yeah, areas and canopy areas of and Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> so do, do hotshots operate though in the larger trees? Do they have to oh, ever yeah. do, yep. do cuts and stuff like yep. that? So the, so the soy, the Sawyers, those saw teams that I was speaking of, those, those saw teams are usually, they are extremely good. Their, their forte, their big, their wheelhouse is cutting down trees. Um, so those guys, like uh, probably 75% of their work is still just cutting brush and clearing brush, but they also fall trees. Um, and that into itself, you probably know is like a huge skill being able to cut, but all firefighters are trained to cut. Um, it's just like assigned roles. Um, once you're in operations that you like, if you're a digger, you're a digger. Um, but everyone gets trained to, to fall trees, even me. Yeah, okay. yeah. That, and you're you refresh on it annually. Is that a slight bump in pay grade as far as nope. the no? No. Okay. No, just, just glory. Gig. Okay. Just glory. Hotshot Sawyers are kind of like the revered, they're like the the ultimate badasses of the fire world. If you're a hotshot Sawyer, you're hard. <laughs> okay. Yeah, because you always see those pictures of, you know, they're they're carrying the the big old they're very large chainsaws and yeah ca- carrying it by the what do you i don't by the I'm bar just, yeah, yeah by the bar over their shoulder yeah yep hmm. yep um i mean it just takes a lot of stamina and a lot of strength to run a saw all day day after day like these guys are jacked like they're so fit because those saws weigh like 25 or 30 pounds and it really depends on like how big of a bar and the model of the chainsaw because some of them have bigger fuel tanks too pretty all body intensive oh yeah yep. you have to have good technique that's a technique thing for sure because it's exhausting to hold a vibrating machine um like out it's 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 a lot of work Everyone's I've my, pretty. I've done my fair bit sore of, at the beginning of fire season. Yeah. So, what would you say is what are they working mostly at? Just everything. It's almost like deadlift. It's everything. Yeah. Biceps. Oh yeah, it's everything. Well, the Sawyers are moving, so like the the Sawyer is cutting, like which means that a lot of it is not just down on the ground. So they're bending over a lot, but it's also like up overhead cause they're limbing trees. So you got to pick this big thing up and cut up over your head. And then, um, and then the swamper is also super strong because they're dragging all that stuff out of there. And sometimes those are like huge rounds, like huge log rounds or like heavy brush and stuff. And they're dragging everything off. So like both of those guys, gals, whoever they're, super strong the diggers are strong too for sure but like it it's definitely um a heavier burden literally like you have to hike with your saw and everything that saw is your saw no one else is going to carry it so how does this change once you get into the repelling realm of things aside from the way you're entering the scene 
are you operating differently? Is the mission different? Yeah. Yep. Um, so like I was saying, hot shots are usually used for extended attack, meaning they just get put into like hot, heavy, large, complicated fires. Um, repellers are used primarily as initial attack. So um, say there's lightning storm overnight, first thing in the morning, one of the lookouts calls in a small lightning fire out in the middle of nowhere. They get the coordinates for it. They'll order the repellers to go check it out. And the repellers load up. It's only four, four crew members um, plus a spotter. And the spotter is the person who um, is like basically your boss. Um, so you go out and you, fly around the fire, um, check it out, see if it's manageable, if it's suitable for, for repel, um, call into dispatch, let them know what you found, give them a size up, give them all this information on the fire that no one's seen yet, except for you, because you're flying around it. Um, and then you get the go ahead to staff the fire or not. And the spotter will put out, um, the repellers, meaning they, they like, hook up the ropes, um, drop the ropes and give you the signals to exit. And then they'll drop those, make a few laps and then come back and kick out your cargo. Um, so we like the personnel, we repel with our fire gear. Um, so just our pack on us, um, which has all of our like personal, um, like our issued gear and then the cargo, um, they, they're called war boxes. Um, we get 400 pounds of cargo that gets kicked out behind us, which contains all of our saws, fuel tools, um, first aid kits, saw kits, um, food, water, sleeping bags, all of our shit. And then we are, um, the idea with repel, any repel mission is that you're going to be self-sufficient for a minimum of 72 hours without resupply. So then you go camp on the fire until it's out. And by camp, I mean, you work all day and then you sleep and then you get up and do it again until it's out. And then, 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 um, you have to get out of the really remote place that you got dropped into. So, um, Sometimes that means you go, you get a helicopter ride out, you go hike all of your crap over to an open space where a helicopter could land and they come out and get you. But that is, that's always the dream. The reality is usually that um, you have to pack it all out to the nearest road and somebody comes and gets you with a truck. And so that is like- With the chainsaws and everything. Everything. So like typical- um, in order to even get into repel rookie training and likewise for smoke jumping rookie training, you, one of the very first things that you have to do is pass a pack test, um, of 110 pounds. So they load you up with a great big bag. Um, and you got to walk three miles with a big bag. Um, because that is how you get off of fires most of the time. And 110 pounds is like the minimum of what that shit's going to weigh. So is there a time constraint on that test? Um, yes. If you, when you do the 85 pound pack test, you have to do it in 90 minutes. Um, Oh, same thing with the 110 and that's on flat ground. Um, 
Then they'll have you do a typical train pack test as well, which I think has a slightly more lenient time frame, but that's like bushwhacking. Okay. So. so let's get into the rappelling again. Are you, you dropping a line from out just out the door of the helo and are you yeah. rappelling like spec ops with gloves or you have a rappel device? Um, so everything is, it's pretty cool. They, the national rappel program is totally standardized. We all use, like I said, bell mediums, which are either two Oh fives or two twelves. Um, they all have, uh, been outfitted with like a special, um, like rappel anchor in the ceiling of the helicopter. And so, um, yeah, we have ropes uh, that one goes out each side. So both doors are open. Um, one goes out each side and then simultaneously uh, one repeller on each side will hook up their descent device. We use full body harnesses, so shoulders um, and uh, leg straps. And the descent device is like right there in front of your belly button. Um, we switched over to these like pretty cool new descent devices that are similar to Grigri's, if you know what those are. Um, we switched over to those a couple years ago. And, um, so yeah, you, um, you hook up to your rope, rather you like feed your rope through your descent device. And this is all like on hand signals cause it's loud as fuck in there. Um, and then when you get the signal, you, um, you repel. And um, for the, the whole cool thing about repelling is that it is uniquely suited for heavy and tall timber. So the ropes that we use are 250 or 300 feet, and we do full length repels all the time. Whoa. Um, so you get a little ride down and then you get to the ground and then you're second um stick of repellers comes down so first two out and then um you get out and or you get off the rope and clear the area and then the second set of two repellers come down the same ropes and then once both of um all all of you guys are on the ground then they'll drop the ropes which means they just detach them from the um anchor inside the helicopter and they just drop them um to you and then they'll go run a lap or two while they hook up um, your cargo boxes. And then um, the spotter will belay the cargo boxes down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Is it, are these, I'm assuming, not that large of ropes so you can pack it out then, right? If they're dropping it? Yeah, the <laughs> ropes are, they're pretty heavy duty. They're like probably 11 mil, 13 okay, mil okay. ropes. And they weigh like, I want to say like 15 pounds each okay. they're not like light like climbing they're ropes. Climbing they're, ropes. no they're like industrial ropes they're pretty heavy yeah um, and you wouldn't want to pull the ropes back up because i guess they would get stuck in the props right whatnot so that's why they have to drop no, it yeah no it would just be a huge that'd be so much time the least safe that a helicopter is um, you might know this already, but the the very least safe thing for a helicopter to do is um, hover under a 500 feet AGL. Hmm. You're like 
literally in the middle of the dead man's curve and Hmm. without any forward movement. So like as little time spent as possible in that hover is ideal. So then just drop the ropes. So once you, you've repelled down, down there, you've collected all your gear, you've set up your situation. What changes as, as far as fighting these fires and in your smaller crew now versus the hot shots? Well, so now there's only four of you and, um, the leader is not necessarily the same person. Every time you kind of, it's, I wouldn't call it like a total lottery, but, um, based on who's the highest on the list, (laughs) um, uh, is going to be the leader, the repeller in charge, the IC, the incident commander, if you will, um, for that fire. And so, uh, the incident commander is responsible for doing kind of like the official parts of firefighting, which is calling in your um, size up to dispatch, giving them updates, requesting additional resources um, and doing the documentation. Um, and then the other three people, you just kind of like pick up whichever tool is the most appropriate for the job. So there's no designated Sawyer. Somebody will be like, I'll grab a saw. And another person will be like, I'll grab a Pulaski. Um, but that doesn't what's, necessarily. Pulaski is a hand tool that has an ax on one side and a hoe on the other. It's like a classic firefighting tool. Um, and you just plug in. Usually those fires are really small. So like four, if, if, if all you did was put four people on a fire, that's a pretty small fire. Um, if it was like a little bigger or if it had potential to get bigger, you could call the dispatch and be like, Hey, I want another load of repellers. So sometimes they'll go back and get another four and then there's eight of you um, or whatever, however many you need. Um, you can pretty much ask for anything you want. And um, as long as it's within your scope of, I almost said scope of practice, but yeah, basically within your scope of um of leadership, then you can get it. So on really small fires, um, uh, that would be what we call a type five fire, meaning that an incident commander type five is the, um, is like the minimum qualification needed to, to man it, to run that fire, to be in charge of that fire. And so type one is the largest fire type five is the smallest fire. Um, And so, and there's certain criteria for each for five to four and then four to three, basically if the fire is getting bigger and you're the, the number of resources that you need is increasing, then the fire is going to move up, um, along that scale. And then you have to call in someone who's more qualified than you to, to run it. But most of these little repel fires, they're type five fires, type four, type five fires. And when you say you, you said plug in, what does that mean? A uh, plug-in means call for it and have them bring it to you and you get them briefed and working. Okay. But is it still the same techniques? Are we still talking trenches? We're still talking. Oh, yeah. You were saying yep. anybody's a Sawyer. Yep. Yep. Okay. yep. You just like it, the firefighting in itself is really easy. You, the fi- you know, the, like the ignition triangle, it's like, um, yep. It's like oxygen, fuel, and heat or something like that. You take those things away and your fire goes out. And so really firefighting is pretty easy in that you're just removing 
the fuel from the fire. So hence removing all the brush, tossing it, and then digging a, a dirt line. The fire just doesn't burn dirt. So yeah. Um, you, you mentioned you're getting dropped into these really remote locations and I'm curious, that must be beautiful type of landscape. I mean, yeah. what, what are you seeing and what, what kind of wildlife do you see sometimes? Oh, that's like the best part of the job is getting to go to all these cool places that you would never, like, I can't tell you how many times we've been on repel fires where we're like, do you think a human being has ever set foot here? Like, in thousands of years, maybe not. Yeah. Um, that totally happens sometimes. And it is, yeah, it's definitely the coolest part of the job is getting to, um, go to these really cool, beautiful, high and remote places with your friends, paid camping trip, fall out of the sky. It's, it's like the dream, like repel fires are the dream. They're so much fun. Got any cool wildlife stories? Um, yeah, I mean, like we, I mean, we see bears once in a while, but bears are usually kind of scared. Um, they, they run away. Um, when I was on the hot shots, we had one guy get stalked by a cougar in broad daylight too. It was super creepy. Um, and like you know, they're silent. So this guy just turned around and this thing was staring right at him and they followed its tracks and they realized that it had been following them for like quite a while. Um, we see, well, like a lot of the fire country that we're in is like elk and, um, big game country. So most fire people, they're also hunters. So they are always, always, looking for things to kill um <laughs> it's um yeah i i don't know like i was on a cool fire once with um a pack of wolves not far um they didn't come bother us or anything but it is kind of cool to be out in the woods and be like whoa i hear an entire pack of wolves like howling on the next ridge over whoa um what where was this Oh, and I, that one was in Idaho. Okay. I mean, there are Idaho's has, a lot, got a lot of wolves, right? Don't they have like a, ins, Idaho like has a situation? A few. I don't okay. think so. No, I think that's what the ranchers would want you to think, but no, hmm. um, no, the, we don't have nearly as many apex predators as we're supposed to. So I don't know. I think there's one state, it's either Montana or somewhere in Idaho. I, I've heard that there's like in the city. It's gotten to the point where oh. the, like wolves are coming in. I don't know. I, I've heard that. I somewhere. don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I think that's like, there's also a lot of anti-wolf agenda out there too. So that's a whole discussion. Hard to, hard to say. I happen to be on the wolves side on that one, but I get it. I'm not, I'm not a rancher. I don't keep livestock. So there's, there's talk of getting wolves back into Colorado. They're talking yeah. about, yeah. So, I mean, so I don't like, know I about was, you guys, but we have way too many deer around here. I would love some wolves. <laughs> so actually yes. speaking of Colorado, I was, our company was founded in Boulder there and yeah, there was quite the fires there just last season. What was, what was that situation where hotshots and different 
like you know repellers and everyone working on that as well because that seemed like a one that might have been out of hand or something you know i actually because <laughs> i took last summer off from fire i did not pay that much attention to specific fires anywhere so to me i it, it all sort of blends together i'm not sure what happened in colorado last year but mm. Yeah, Colorado is perpetually burning. Some of the biggest fires I've ever been on were um, the, you remember the fires that burned in Colorado Springs in 2014, 15? Nope, sorry, but yeah. Huge, yeah. huge. Huge fires, yeah. Um, but uh, yes, I guess to answer your question, those are like all hands on deck kind of fires where they require all types of resources and they just, they take everything that they can get and they start throwing it at it. Hmm. How much money would you say if you were to just ballpark it, we're talking staffing, flight, fuel, pilots, everything, everyone, everyone in the, you know, in the background working, what would you say? Like you say at that Colorado Springs fire, if you were to guesstimate how many Oh, they actually do. Spent? they do running totals on daily running totals on these, um, that are published every single day of fire season. Um, mm -hmm. big fires are like millions of dollars. Um, sort of funny. <laughs> um, you'll notice it's all, it's all on something called the sit report, um, which is put out by the national interagency fire center every single morning at five 30 in the morning, you can just Google the sit report and it'll show you the state of wildfires in the entire country. Um, and with their costs, how many structures have been lost, how many helicopters, how many crews, how many engines are on any given fire. And then like a short description of each fire, really good resource. Um, California fires are super duper expensive because they have so many more resources and they throw so much more stuff at every single fire to contain it very quickly because they have to because California is overpopulated. Um, but like you can have, I guess the size of a fire doesn't necessarily correlate with how much it costs because you can have fires out in the middle of nowhere that don't cost very much because we're more or less just managing them for um fire use but yeah big big fires like in close proximity to cities that are extended attack go on for several weeks at a time like millions millions mm. for sure now you mentioned you I, I asked that question about close calls and you kind of diverted well is there any any kind of type of situation where you and your crew were at a pretty close call yeah i had I think probably the closest call I've ever had was actually my, <laughs> I think it was my first year in fire. Um, but we were down in Oregon. Um, there were, there was a huge lightning bust, meaning a large storm had passed through with like many thousand lightning strikes and it had started dozens of little fires all over the place in um kind of the central Oregon cascades area and so they had pulled in a ton of crews from all over to start like getting in to these fires and and try to get them captured because the thing about lightning bus a lot of the time if you don't get all these little fires put out they grow and eventually 
sometimes they grow into like a single or several large fires. So um, lightning busts are pretty fun. Um, you go in there and you work really quickly. So we had gotten into, um, we had gotten flown into, this is when I was on a hand crew, um, flown into this remote little half acre fire. I think it was when we got there and another crew, but it was burning in heavy timber with like a really, you know, the, the cascades are, it's the rainforest, the temperate rainforest, right? So the duff layer the organic material layer of the forest is really, really thick. So you have to dig down extremely deep in order to like actually pull fuel away. So we were digging fire line that was like several feet deep and it wasn't working because the fire was just like, it had all the right conditions. It was warm. The humidity was low. Um, the wind was blowing. Um, it had been a dry summer. And so we were just like, we were trying to put line around this little half acre thing, but it was just growing. Um, and eventually uh, towards the end of the night, late in the evening, um, the fire was just like clearly taking off um, and getting up higher into the trees, what we call canopy fire. Um, and so we just decided to pull off for the night. You can't, you're not supposed to fall trees or run chainsaws in the dark seems pretty okay. obvious. Um, that's not a good protocol. Um, so we had like pulled off, we hiked quite a ways away from the fire and, um, just like bedded down, literally just laid down in the dirt right there and kind of kept our eyes on it all night and it kept moving. And then, um, the typical, typical thing with fires is they, they die down at night. The, Humidity naturally rises quite a bit. Um, wind usually dies down. It's colder. So fire activity is typically less at night than it is during the day. Um, and then during the day, the heat of the solar radiation and, and wind and everything, it causes uh, fires to kick up again. Well, this fire, um, it got like a warm, we're not exactly sure, but there was just like pulsing down drafts of warm air on the fire. So the fire, like, and fires typically, this is a gravity thing. Fires typically run uphill. They don't really run downhill unless they're being pushed. Um, and this fire started to run downhill, like toward, like, and side hill towards us and down towards our hella spot, like where all of our gear was all like, I guess I should back up. Whenever you're engaging a fire, you almost always put your gear, your hella spot, whatever, um, downhill from the fire because the fire is least likely to come down at you. Um, and so our hell spot and everything were down there with all of our gear, all of our nets full of our crap and everything. Um, and so, yeah, we got up early in the morning and we like went and tried to re-engage the fire. It was running like at like eight o'clock in the morning, it was like running up through the grounds and we were just like, Oh, this is just like, this is out of hand. This is way too much. And so we ended up running down our escape route to a pond and we like huddled by the pond for a bit and we watched this thing like go big and they were calling to get us out of there. Um, they were like, we need to get off this hill. We were like pretty much on the upper third 
of a small mountain and really nowhere to go. There were no real safety zones except for this pond. Um, no open, clear areas with just grass in it. I mean to say, and definitely no, just like dirt. It was like a big, it was a steep little mountain. Um, and so they started calling for helicopters to get us out. So um, helicopters started showing up and we started loading up. They Each helicopter can only take like five or six people at a time. There's two crews, so there's 40 people. They're like going back and forth as fast as they can to get us out. Um, the fire is like running at the hell spot at this point. Um, and then on the very last load, second to last load of people coming out, the fire is like starting to overtake the hell spot, which means that the, the helicopter literally can't land. So there's still like two more guys on the ground who haven't gotten picked up. The two guys on the ground are actually repellers. They're the ones who are shuttling us. Um, and so I think what they ended up doing is they kicked out a cargo box to those guys with a chainsaw in it. And those guys fired up a chainsaw and ran down the hill and like chopped out a really rudimentary hella spot really fast Um and the helicopter flew over there, landed, they hopped in, and then they flew away, like, right as the fire overtook that, too. Oh, and where were you during this time? You guys are huddled by a pond, you're saying? No, uh, we, were, we were in, like, the groups of people being shuttled out by the helicopter. So, like, we, we had gone down to the pond to wait um, cause that was like the only safety zone we had while we were calling for backup to come get us out of there. And, and um, then the, the heli spot was a different spot from the pond. Heli spot was close. like really close to the pond. Yeah. Um, okay. and so we like pretty much hustled over from the pond to the heli spot. Every time the helicopter came in, we'd just like load up as five people in as much gear as possible. And then they'd fly away, drop them off, come back, pick up another five, but I mean, it was 40 people. So it took them quite a few trips to get everybody out. And that's, and then that fire ended up going like 200 something thousand acres within the next few days. It went enormous. Yeah, it was like, and it was kind of cool. Cause like, that was my first exposure to repellers. I was like, I had, I didn't know what repellers did or anything. And those guys definitely thought quickly and acted decisively to get themselves out of there and get all of us out of it there. Now would have, would have a worst case scenario been to potentially stay in the pond for those yeah. last remaining two. Yeah. Okay. Totally. Yep. And what would be the consequences of that? Do you think they would survive in that pond? Yeah, but it's just like, it's, uh, it's still dangerous. Like trees fall <laughs> a lot in wildfires. Like you get fire established in anything and all of a sudden the roots are gone and then they fall. So like, just because you're in a pond doesn't mean that something can't fall and hit you. Um, and then also like superheated gases, you don't want to be breathing those. So like the way we've been taught with our fire shelters is to, if you are in a body of water to basically submerge yourself, but also have your fire shelter over your head to make a, like a little bubble of, of air that you can breathe. Um, 
Likewise, fire shelters on the ground, like you keep them as tight around you as possible, but you try to dig out like a little hole near your face to keep the air cooler and cleaner. Now, from reading about those fire shelters, are they only rated for about 500 degrees Fahrenheit? Is that accurate? That's what I read. Um, yeah, they-, they start to delaminate. Um, doesn't mean that they can't help you. Anyways, <laughs> you're definitely better off with them than without them. But like using a fire shelter is not common. That's a life or death situation. Every single time a fire shelter is deployed, there's an investigation. So like you need to be literally run over by fire for those things to come out. They're not casual at all. Is there many survival stories of a fire literally running over individuals and and being they've survived because of the fire shelter? Yes. Yep. Um, There's also plenty of fatalities where people use their fire shelters. And that's like also that's for varieties of reasons, but yeah. um, Like I said, you're still definitely better off with it than without it. Interesting. So like, you know, I don't know what, what does a fire typically run at temperature wise? If if it's only to 500 degrees, that needs to be, is that a pretty small fire for that shelter to actually withstand the heat and make somebody survive? Um, so I might not be able to explain this as well as I want to, but essentially like you're not going to be cool in there, right? Like you are not going to be comfortable. It's going to be extremely hot. It's going to like the, what we've been taught is like, you're still going to feel like you're inside of an oven, but like, it's still significantly cooler than what it is on the outside of the shelter. And like the way they, they often describe it in like our training videos is something that's like, it's the difference between like first and second degree burns and death. It does not mean that you're going to be like in there, like, Oh, I'm so comfortable. Like means you could still definitely get injured. You could still definitely have airway injuries. You could still definitely get burned. However, your chances of survival, like actually not dying are higher. One human instinct at a certain temperature be to get the hell out of there. And yes. And that is why they, that's like, statistically, that's why people die in their fire shelters is they're like, I can't take this anymore. I can't take it. I can't take it. And then they flip it over or like try to get out to try to move to someplace else. And then they die instantly because like superheated gases and stuff. Is there something they tell you mentally to? Yes. What do they say? Like whatever it takes to force yourself to stay in that fire shelter. Like you can, like, if you're religious then pray, if there's like something that you want to repeat to yourself, um, they tell you to take your radio with you. Um, we all have handheld radios, um, and like stay in contact with the other people who are also in their shelters and like, you know, call out. Um, more often than not, if you're deploying your shelters, like you're going to be right next to the rest of your crew. In fact, they like, when, when they teach you to do it, they like want you guys to all like try and line up as close to each other as possible because that, um, helps deflect more heat. Um, when you're all burritoed up 
next to each other. Um, and so you can shout, talk to your, talk to the people around you. Fires are extremely loud, like fires at that. Um, it, it sounds like a hurricane. Um, so you might have to yell, but like whatever it takes to stay in the shelter, you are definitely safer inside of the shelter than you are outside of it. Do you know anybody that's had to deploy one and survive? I do. Yeah. How do they tell that story? Um, well, the individual that I'm thinking of in particular, he, he's actually survived two deployments. Um, and he tells it in a way that makes you really not just think about like what you would do in the worst case scenario, but how you would shape every single decision from the time you wake up every morning to avoid that situation. So like if you are, whether you're a crew member or you're the leader of a crew, it puts like a huge amount of weight on the very smart decision-making and the foresight to make it so that you are never giving the order or being given the order to deploy your shelter. And what does he say? What, what are specifics uh, that he says as far as that? Um, me- for, state? Especially like, honestly, most of those roads lead back to that good LCES um, having all of your, there's a fine line sometimes between like having all of your T's crossed and I's dotted and engaging for the sake of like efficiency. You need to get in there sometimes and you don't specifically stop and lay all those things out. But um, just like from, I guess from, from a mental standpoint, it's, it's like you make all these decisions on like the contingency that you're going to whatever decision you make could kill your friends. So like, that sounds really grave, but that's because it is like um, the, one of the most common factors of fatality fires is that the fire behavior wasn't doing much. Like it really didn't seem like a ripping fire. The conditions didn't seem like something was going to go wrong that day. That is like one of the biggest factors. Um, And so like fire has a way of uh, erasing all complacency in that way. Um, Just forces you to be smarter, I guess, to think that way. What did he describe the feeling of being in that shelter like? Like hell. Like it's the Hmm. worst, the worst feeling in the world. And like, I won't, I guess I won't name him specifically, but um, he, you, did you follow up with like what happened to Brendan uh, after uh, Yarnell? This like, is, uh, you, yeah, so the main character from Only the Brave. Yeah. Do you, are you sort of aware of what I, happened with him? I, 
uh from my knowledge he's like kind of a motivational speaker now and, and he has, is and yeah. that's following like years of alcoholism and suicidal depression um and that's not uncommon the the superintendent of the prineville hotshots um the guy who um he survived after 14 of his hotshots were killed on storm king in colorado in 1994 he spent 20 years drinking himself into oblivion. Um, the guy that I personally know who's survived two deployments became a hardcore alcoholic. Like the, the trauma of surviving the, the survivor's guilt, the flashbacks to those events like they're unbearable um so like that's i guess that's um i would say like almost maybe a common thing to have happen is like just an inability to cope afterwards and these these are guys that are like used to being strong and um called heroic and you know the whole community is like feels bad for them and and like is calling them a hero and stuff like you can imagine the pressure so um yeah i i like i can't i personally can't even imagine what those guys have gone through yeah even when you're you're talking about it i just i just hear the sound like i i and i i didn't ever even experience it but i'm just picturing yeah, how loud it is, and and if you guys are huddled together, I'm assuming you're hearing screams. Yeah, uh, so. I've never been there, but like I've heard too that it's just it's horrific. It's like the firefighters that died um, in Yarnell. Like those guys were all fairly close together. They found they they could tell and this is like the same with a lot of the larger fatalities is like the guys are in a in a line more or less so it's like they ran as far as they could and then they dropped and sheltered um so you can kind of just see uh at what time or like you can kind of almost see the timeline of how they got overtaken very yeah like so, and we, we talked about, uh, one of my questions was actually, you know, if you're, if you are an outdoorsman and you're stuck in a situation where there's a forest fire, you know, they try to say not to outrun it, a water source isn't necessarily the best decision. So what would you say is the best survival tactic? Um, I guess if you are like really deep out there, like say you're on a hunting trip or something and you're way out there. Um, I would go to an open high point. Um, like, or, um, an open high yeah. point. Or didn't, didn't we say a low point is well, key? so, um, an open high point is like, if you're going to get rescued or something picked up, that's, much more ideal to a low point, like a low open meadow would be great. Um, tends to be a little more humid and wet down in the valleys. If you can find a 
big, low, open, like grassy area. But um, like, I guess what I'm thinking of is like a lot of really high points, they're like rocky um, or less timbered. So it would have to be like an open grassy point if you could find one. Um, and definitely like no canyons. Don't go into any narrow spaces. Fire in the wild and fire in your chimney are no different. They constrict in those spaces and they accelerate. So no canyons. <laughs> so we're like by canyon, do we also mean just in between two mountains? Yep. Like, okay. Yeah. Anywhere that's like with steep on both sides of you. So like a river Canyon is not, not ideal. Um, really? Yeah. You don't, I mean, like you don't want to be down there. Um, so could you explain why? Cause like say the fire is on one mountain side, a little definitely higher. And yeah. So like, say you, you've got your two yep. hills here, the fire's up here, it comes down. Well, if it comes down and jumps the road or jumps the river or whatever, then it has an unobstructed run up to the top with which it can gain a ton of momentum running for the top. And that will like completely like, you know, fire sucks all the oxygen in. And so um, in those tighter canyons, like I said, the, the fire accelerates, it'll just start pulling air like crazy up into these canyons. Some of the most active, like the biggest fire behavior you'll ever see usually is like fire that's established itself at the bottom of a slope um, in a tight canyon. It'll just explode um, and run for the top really hard. Um, but so, so like, like picture, like making this scenario, say the fire is on that one mountainside and you're in between the cannon and that fire, what would be your best course of action, you think? Go down, down canyon. Okay, so like, do you go in the canyon, but... Go, start going downstream. Okay. Like, because inevitably it's going to get wider, right? Usually yeah. it doesn't get narrower. It gets narrower as it goes upstream. So I'd go downstream and get on a road. <laughs> get on a road... Like if anything, a road can actually be a, an okay um, safety zone because it's a road. Like okay. um, obviously if it's really smoky, you run the risk of, I guess, get, getting hit by a car or something if you lay down in a road. But um, yeah. like I said, there's like very few places out there in the world where you would be so far from infrastructure that you wouldn't be able to get to somewhere but mm -hmm. like also i guess the other thing is is you're thinking of fire that's like running walls of flame which uh, fires don't always do most of the time don't do that they don't just start and then all of a sudden it's like this blazing inferno usually they're small and they get bigger and they kind of ebb and flow depending on what pockets of opportunity they come into um, heavy fuels or extra dry fuels, or they align just so with the wind and the terrain. Um, but like, if you were out there and you saw a little, like if you saw a little fire or something, um, odds are you can just hike 
like hike in the right direction. Like don't hike into the fire, but like you stop, turn around and just hike back out. Yeah. I think I've definitely put myself at risk of sounding completely ignorant on this podcast for whoever's listened this long. But yeah, my references are from like the movie Bambi, right? I'm thinking these big walls, oh, yeah. deers are, deers are yeah. flying out. Nah. Um, I mean, yeah. like fire will do that too, but like really you, that wouldn't come out of nowhere. You would mm-hmm. see that from a ways away. Yeah. yeah. You can't, uh, yeah, it's kind of hard to just stumble into a wildfire. They're huge. There's smoke. <laughs> And I just, I, I just have like a technicality question regarding the fire shelters. How are you holding that down? Is it your, your hands on the um, side of it? So it's kind of like the shape of a sleeping bag, um, except the, there is no bottom to it exactly, but there is like a lip. So like, imagine you have a sleeping bag with just like a strip cut out of the bottom or something so you put your elbows on the on like the lip that curls under um and same thing with your feet they also have like these chintzy sewn in straps that you can grab and hold on to to hold it down because the other thing about fire when it's like that raging is it creates its own wind so like hurricane force wind will try to like lift up the edges of the shelter so you really do have to hold them down with your arms and yeah that's what i'm feet that's what i'm picturing yeah Oof. um and let's uh i know we've talked about so much i'm just so curious about this whole everything and now you're you're saying you're currently training to be a smoke jumper yeah that's how my little the, how, how that's my little secret go? right now which oh, i'm well. telling you so now <laughs> No, you know, but, um, how long is the process? Yeah. Um, well, so for me, that's been several years in the works. Um, I was fortunate enough to have been somewhat recruited. Um, and they have asked me to join them. Um, and, So timing wise with nursing school and then becoming a nurse and then working as a nurse during a global pandemic kind of sidetracked me for a little while. Um, But now I'm, I'm really going for it. The official process of it is um, not very long. Apps are due in October. Selections are made in January and then um, the rookie classes start in April would you say it's only the best of the hot shots that get selected or not necessarily? Um, I mean, they're picking me up. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You seem pretty rad. From, from uh, yeah, but, but like I, so historically smoke jumpers have been just like complete studs, like pipe hitter Olympic athletes. Like they're just incredibly fit. And that has always been over like the, the many, many decades of smoke jumping tradition. That is really like the criteria for making it through rookie training has been to be incredibly fit. Um, over the last few years, they have started opening up that, um, 
demographic a little bit more to um, people who are less than Olympic athletes <laughs> because, um, and they have, they have a few reasons for this, but um, one of them is that that doesn't necessarily make, again, fitness does not necessarily make a great firefighter. Um, and fitness doesn't necessarily make a good critical thinker or a good leader or like a lot of those other qualities. Um, and so over the last few years, um, they've, they've started trying to like think more, um, progressively about the people that they're hiring and, um, bring in people with life experience and more diverse skill sets than just like, I'm, I can do 40 pull-ups. <laughs> and, um, that's actually, that's worked out for them really well operationally too, because, um, and, and I'm just repeating what I've been told. I'm obviously not a smoke jumper yet. So I'm just, I'll just tell you what they told me, which is that, um, over the decades, they've almost always used the, the round parachutes, like think those, those world war two dropper yep. parachutes, um, which, uh, they, there isn't a whole lot of piloting involved with those. They just kind of fall out of the sky. Um, and, the forest service is transitioning to the Ram air parachutes. Um, some bases have already completed their full transitions. Other bases are partway through their transitions. Um, but eventually the entire forest service and the BLM will be flying, um, Ram air squares. And, um, with that comes a whole different and larger skill set for piloting. And, um, it does take, some cool heads and critical thinking, um, adapt and overcome kind of, of, um, skill sets. So what they found was that as they expanded their, um, search for different types of smoke jumper candidates, um, that people, um, who were just, uh, I don't want to make this sound mean, but just like people who are smarter ended up doing really well with, with the Ram air canopies because they do take um, more of that, that skill um, to pilot. And so uh, that's what I've been told. Um, that is a new topic as far as even the air force PJs are adopting that mentality of not necessarily recruiting the person that can do the most push-ups. And in history, and you, you'll talk to Navy SEALs and stuff like that, they're often saying, yeah, the person that can, that's most physically in shape is not the most fit to lead. And typically leadership and all the thought process and the concentration, and that's where your energy is going. Well, the, something's going to fall slightly more by the wayside. And oftentimes that's your physical. So that's not to say there's not great and phenomenal shape leaders, but often they're not necessarily the, the top athlete as a well, as one of the best leaders because oh, you're for putting sure. in your energy in different realms um yeah and that's, that's so okay. like 10 10 years ago even i never would have been able to be a smoke jumper candidate i think because of that exact sort of shift in mentality like just bottom line is is i can't do 
40 pull-ups. <laughs> and so therefore like, sorry, that's, this isn't going to be your, your path. Um, but it doesn't mean that they completely compromise on the fitness thing. They still hold us to extremely high physical fitness standards. I'm training my ass off right now. Um, and I hope to, you know, do them, do them proud with what I've, with what I've got, not being like the greatest athlete ever. What like, how does that operate as far as when it was canopies and you're saying still is in a lot of places, how do you drop somebody in what, like, is it a forest area? They're op- looking for clearings and it's just the mm-hmm. pilot's timing, just dropping folks and hoping for the best. Yep. Um, well, no, it's, a, I think it's quite a bit more calculated than that. And like I said, I've never smoked jumped before, but, um, They do kind of similar to what repellers do in that they go out and they recon the fire. Um, They look for from the air, they look for all their escape routes, safety zones and a good um, landing zone. Um, More often than not, jumpers are not going to have like a sweet landing zone right next to their fire. Repellers are cool in that way in that you can just insert them like right next to the fire because your biggest risk is what rotor wash. Um, and, uh, but, but jumpers do need, yeah, like a safe place to jump. Um, and so they go and they, um, they go up to their jumping altitude and they throw out streamers, which are like flagging, bright, bright flagging. And they'll throw out streamers to see where the wind and the drift is. Um, so they have a pretty good idea of where to put the jumpers out so that they land in the spot in the right way. But also, like I said, with the Ram airs, you can steer a lot yeah. more with the rounds that that mattered quite a bit more because uh, like wherever you drop them, they're going to go pretty much down unless there's quite a bit of wind to push them for which the streamers are really um, important. But like with the Ram airs, really, you just want to, I think as far as I know is you want to line them up so that their headwind um, they can land into the headwind and then like line, line up better. I've only jumped a little bit, so I don't actually know these things. And that was like um, sport, sport jumping. So I don't know. I am wondering, you know, there's certain places in the wild and depending on where they're fighting fires, but isn't there areas where it's just forced and there's not much of a clearing. So where are you going to drop them? Yeah. So for the jumpers, they train to do fairly tight timber jumps. Um, I mean, obviously there still needs to be somewhere to go. So if it's just not appropriate to jump the spot, jump that fire, then it's just not appropriate. Um, And they'll get another resource in there, but, or they'll have them jump fairly far away and start having them hike in. So if it's a couple miles, it's a couple miles, then so be it. Um, Aside from the jump and the fact that it's probably more remote locations, does the smoke jumper detail very much from the repellers? Um, yes and no. Um, jumpers 
overall as a resource are tend to be more experienced with higher qualifications. Um, so when jumpers get put in on a fire, you have a bunch of really highly qualified people to start setting up almost an immediate fire team uh, infrastructure. So as resources continue to get added to that fire, like you already have like this built-in well-oiled leadership machine to start like lining them out and plugging them in. Um, whereas repellers tend to be, um, first of all, there's like less of them that like you get four of them per fire. Whereas like a jump load, I think they could put out like up to 10 guys at once wow. or 12 or something maybe more yeah, with some of the newer planes. Um, but repellers are always limited to four per load and they tend to be like lower qualified. Um, and so they, they are like less complex fires, typically smaller um, or they're just there to start gaining an anchor point while you wait for more resources to start coming in and then you end up becoming part kind of a cog in the bigger machine, but you're not running the show anymore. So jumpers, jumpers definitely have like a cool niche in which they are, um, they're like ready to deploy fire teams. And by teams, I mean like the whole organizational structure of like a larger fire, um, like all of those roles can be on board in a single plane and they drop them out of the sky. And now you've got like your ops and your divisions and your task force leaders and like all those things um, that are ready to start like leading other groups of people. Okay. So, so, so does it tend to be fires that have more potential to grow? More so potentially sure. than repellers. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yep. Oof, pretty pretty cool stuff. So we'll we'll start wrapping it up. What like I'm guessing as these fires increase, like California, and it seems like it's only getting worse, right? In your opinion, is that true? Is it gonna continue to get worse and worse as I guess the pollution, everything's getting worse as well? Um that's what all of our predictions are. Um, like I said, we still are paying back um, the debt we owe to a century of um, overaggressive fire suppression. Like there's millions upon millions of acres of land out there. Like we have not even touched or looked at so much of it and um without like i said without um regular natural fire cycles coming through areas that fuel continues to load um we also have the more extreme weather and like i don't particularly like global warming as as a term um because that seems a little polarizing but um for sure, like climate change is, is real. And, and the way that we've seen climate change in the wildfire world is that the weather itself is more extreme. So that doesn't just mean warmer. It means like higher wind events earlier in the year and like huge warm air masses and like 
bigger storms, bigger lightning storms, um, bigger potential for fire to create its own weather, which is really, really cool to watch, but also terrifying. And there's no human being that can stand in the way of fire like that. Um, so there's that. And then the final part is, is um, like the human to wildland interface. So humans are like constantly expanding their property out and further. So like the natural consequence of that as we encroach on fire habitat is that we are going to have greater losses and property damage simply by having more shit out there to burn. So when people say worse, um, it, it's, it, worse is sort of like a subjective. It's like, are we going to have fires that burn more people's stuff up or fires that like burn hotter and more um, like normal fires? I guess I should go back a little bit. Normal fires, they don't devastate the landscape. <laughs> they, they're like a um, normal fires are like fairly moderate. They stick to the ground. They torch up a few trees here and there. Basically, they just like sort of clean up the forest floor and they allow for new growth, um, take out some dead stuff. Um, devastatingly large fires, they're the ones that like torch up entire forests into like moonscapes of char, right? Like, and then it takes years and years for that to regenerate. That's, that's like not a typical, that's not normal. Um, so Sorry, I'm kind of bouncing around there a little bit, but yeah, it's everything points to fires, not, not turning around and going away anytime soon. But isn't the surface area also increasing every year? I know you're saying that population is growing and the residences are going more on fire zones, but aren't the fire zones also expanding and going into spots that they've never been before? Um, well, there's no place that fire has never been before. <laughs> right, right. Sorry, but like, yeah, you know, no. Yeah. Um, but yeah, fires, fires are bigger. But some of that is also, like I said, by design. We are trying to let fires do the work for us. In that, um, if we can manage the fire rather than suppress it, then we will. So, in say on one side of a fire, it's pushing towards a city. So we suppress that side of the fire, but the other side of that fire is pushing like deep into the, like towards a wilderness area or like, you know, totally untouched woods. You can pretty much let that side do its own thing. Hmm. Um, you know, unless that fire has the, uh, potential of like wrapping around and coming back at the city from another angle, which we always are considering. And we, we tend to go in, even when we let fire do its own thing, we go in and we sort of like check it up in certain points so we can sort of guide it in the direction we want it to go. But, um, that that's, that's what we call broadly, we call fire use, which means, yeah, like it's, it's basically prescribed fire, um, similar to prescribed fire. Um, and it's fire on our own terms where we're comfortable with it burning. So yeah, fires are getting bigger also for that reason, because we're letting them and that's free work. Right now is the demand for forest firefighters 
increasing? Uh, I don't think so, but, um, that's sort of a weird, that's a whole nother can of worms. Um, fire, like I said, historically has always just been like this sort of young kids student game. So it's never paid very well. Um, doesn't have any benefits, no healthcare, no retirement. You just get a paycheck. And so, um, so like there are a lot of people who leave the fire world for greener pastures, myself included. I mean, I went and became a nurse. Um, so retention is difficult because people want to have families. They want to buy a house. It's really hard to do that when you only make like $25,000 a year. (laughs) for something that only lasts for like half the year. Mm -hmm. Um, So like, I guess in that sense, yeah, it's always a struggle to keep those ranks filled. Like as many, for as many people who are all like fired up and like, are like, I want to have a, I want an adventurous fun job. There's just as many people that are like, I literally can't afford to, do this it's room it's not enough money for me to like really get ahead in life and also my girlfriend's gonna kill me because i haven't been home in six months (laughs) so yeah so (laughs) like it's really hard it's really hard on the on the family and the social Mm -hmm. life it's it's not an easy path to walk for sure so why do it oh man because it's so much fun and like you it's it's like it so i remember when i first started hot shotting somebody told me it's an abusive relationship you hate it but you love it a little more than you hate it and i thought that was so so funny because yeah like 99 percent of the time you're doing something absolutely miserable you're filthy and your back hurts and you've been eating garbage cheese mres on garbage MRE tortillas for weeks and like you aren't pooping right. And well, you're pooping in the woods, but you, your shit's not coming out right. And like you're sleeping on the rocks and you're um, totally sick and tired of the guy who digs next to you in line. And um, you haven't seen your significant other, anyone in forever and everyone's running out of tobacco and it's like, you know, a million reasons to be all like grumpy and cranky and you're tired and hot and dirty. And at the same time, those are like all the things that make it so special is that you're like running around in the woods, chucking sticks around and digging with your friends and um, seeing beautiful country and watching fire do its thing. And it's like all of its glory and you're, um, you're making cool memories. And when it's all over, you're going to be like, Oh, I can't believe it's over. And like, you'll start missing it in the middle of the winter really bad. And, um, can't wait for next season and just love the smell of the fire and We'll, we'll leave with one last <laughs> one last question here, and it's it's twofold, so you can answer one or both or either. But what type of person would you say? What type of person would you recommend potentially getting into that 
industry or what kind of person would you not recommend to get into that industry? Um, the kind of person that would do really well in fire is someone who has a good attitude and is willing to say yes to, to anything. Um, it really truly doesn't matter if you're the fastest hiker or the best digger or the whatever best in the group physically. Um, if you have a bad attitude, you're totally worthless. Um, so a lot of people believe that they can't be a hotshot because they're like, that's such a hard job. That's such a physically difficult job. And that's not true. It is physically hard, but more than anything, you got to just like be happy to be there. (laughs) Um, that's more valuable than anything. Um, be, be reliable, have your, have your poop in a group as they say, um, be dialed. Um, the kind of person that doesn't, wouldn't thrive well in a hotshot crew. And I hate to say this, but this is specific to hotshotting. Someone who like thinks that thinks like a little too independently and not that individual ideas aren't valued, but like in a hotshot crew, you you fully surrender to being fingers on a hand. You fully surrender to being a cog in the machine and being part of a, like a well-oiled machine. Um, and so unless it's your job to make decisions, it's your job to, to follow orders. So you have to be a good follower um, and, and do what you're told and like not argue and, if you do bring up points like to do it with humility, but like the kind of people that don't thrive on hotshot crews are the ones who are like undermining or doubting or constantly like shit talking or like being like, well, my way, you know, whatever it's, you're going to do a lot of pointless work. That's well recognized. That is like such a, um, understood part of hot shotting is you're going to do a lot of things, a lot of hard things that may or may not matter in the grand scheme of things. That's, that's what it is. If you can't handle that, it's not for you. (laughs) You got to go do something else. Sweet. (sighs) Hey, I think my, my interview here has been super, super serious. I've been serious Steve over here. Um, I think, it would be awesome because I know you have other things going on in the works and you used to, we, we talked about your, you know, going to the Olympic trials for swimming. I think that'd be great to have you on as a swim coach to talk that we're not going to do that this episode. We're at already at like two and a half hours. Um, but I think it'd be, if you're willing down the road, you know, we'll give you a break. Cause this is like a big one. Um, but I think it'd be awesome to have you back on Caitlin. Um, oh, thanks. and yeah, and <laughs> have a lighter conversation because my I can I think my questions are definitely serious because I'm so curious about the subject. I think it's a really cool gig that you do and and thanks so much for yeah diving into all the the nitpicky information. Thanks for anyone uh that listened this this long. Any parting words for the potential future hotshots? I mean I know you already <laughs> dropped some a lot but oh gosh. 
Well, well, I don't know. I guess all I can say is my entire journey of with wildland fire has been like an, um, sort of an unexpected one or rather no one would have expected that of me. Um, I don't really seem like the type and, um, I have like fought that every step of the way. And I like my favorite saying is, um, is you can't win if you don't play. So telling yourself that you can't is really all that stands in the way of you trying. And now I'm about to go try to, to smoke jump. And I don't know if I'm going to succeed or not. Um, who knows, but I think that like, it's better to go find out than it is to sit here and wonder why I didn't try. And that is, has been the story with every step of my fire career. Like I said, I was told that I would probably never make it as a hotshot. And then when I was a hotshot, my hotshot soup told me like, you're going to have to step it up if you want to be a repeller chin. <laughs> And then I went and did that too for four years. And so like, it's just, you know, there's always something out there on the horizon that you should be looking for. So here we are. <laughs> All right, Caitlin, hopefully until our next conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was very cool. I'm flattered. <laughs> <laughs>